theyeshiva.net. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate and uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity and this privilege. Thank you to Rabbi Rabvaski Shlita, the Rabbi of Young Israel, the spiritual leader of Young Israel of Boca Raton. Welcome to the entire community of Young Israel of Boca. It's really a great honor and I'm thrilled to be here with all of you and all of you who are joining us this evening from Boca Raton, wherever you're joining us from, the wide world. Thank you and welcome, Ruchim Habayim, to everybody. And of course, a very special thank you, as we just heard, to Dr. David and Marisa Levinson, sponsoring this special evening of learning and chizuk and growing together in memory of your father, David, Professor Harold Levinson, in honor of the art site. And thus, I thank you very much and I thank all of you for joining us here this evening as we explore this very loaded topic of coping with COVID, with the coronavirus, from a Jewish perspective, from a Torah perspective. Allow me to begin with an old Jewish anecdote about this fellow who was, he loved to worry. He was enthralled by worrying. He was just the warrior type, always filled with worry and anxiety, and everybody in the office knew it. He was the boss, he was the founder of a, of a corporation, of a business, and he was always anxious, always worrying. One day, he comes into the office, serene and calm, no worry, anxiety-free. And the manager comes over to him and says, Yankel, what happened? How are you so calm? And he says, I saw in the newspaper that you can hire somebody for your company, and that person's job is to worry. And I hired this fellow, comes with a good resume, a lot of experience, and he is going to be paid to worry. I don't have to worry anymore. He's going to worry about everything in our business. So the manager says, tell me, how much are you paying him? He says, well, the first year he takes $150,000. After that, the fee goes up. Manager says, (laughs) $150,000? I don't understand. We are struggling here. There are days that I think we're going to go bankrupt. How in the world are you going to pay this fellow $150,000? And Yankel says, well, that's his first worry. This is a time when people are anxious. There is anxiety out there and inside of here. There is stress. There is fear. There's a lot of insecurity. People are worried about the future. People have suffered great losses ailment, losses of loved ones, of community members, of neighbors, of teachers. I come from New York, I'm in New York, living in New York. The pandemic struck very hard here, as it has in other places. And all of us know somebody, sometimes very close people, who have lost their lives, sometimes at a relatively young age. And these tragedies are devastating. There is the financial worry, the financial devastation to many people. Somebody said in the beginning of the coronavirus, you know, March, We're all in the same boat. And I said, that's not exactly true. We're all experiencing the same storm, but we're not in all the same boat. Some people put on their Crocs and their T-shirts, and they're happy to retire at home. They have, thank God, enough money and enough food. They don't have to worry. They could be at home for a long time. Other people are struggling financially. Some people are in a very, you know, tiny space with a lot of children. It's not easy. There's also a great toll 
that has, this has, has taken on the youth, teenagers, boys and girls or children who were quarantined for months, only with screens. This has taken quite a great toll, as I know from personal experience and c- communication and conversation. There's, of course, the psychological stress, the emotional stress, the spiritual stress, the financial stress, the physical stress. There is worry. And I find that a lot of people are really very anxious. This is, even without anything else, coupled with the riots in America and the upheavals, coupled with a very, very confusing election, whichever, whoever you voted for. But these last few weeks were quite intense. A lot of polarization, a lot of accusation a lot of negativity, a lot of toxicity, with uncertainty of the corona and the politics and the different sides, it creates a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos in people's hearts. Now, there are those people who know it all, you know, they'll tell you how it began, how it's going to end. This doctor is right. No, that doctor is right. This scientist knows what he's talking about. No, that scientist knows what he's talking about. I think a little humility is in order. I think we have all all come to learn how ignorant we are. There was once a great master who said, in ignorance we are all wealthy. We, lesson number one, in 2020, we have come to a point where we all felt that we have become masters of the universe. The famous Israeli uh, historian and scientist, professor of Oxford University, Yuval Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, followed it up with a second book called Homo's Deus, which basically means man replaces God. Man becomes God. In the book he predicts, from a scientific point of view, he's not the greatest believer, to put it mildly, that very shortly scientists are planning to double the lifespan. Just as we doubled the lifespan in the last half a century, from 40 to 80, 70, 80, they're going to double it again. From 80 to 150 to 160, which is great news. It also means that your mother-in-law lives till 160 years old. It also means that you have 100 years of being retired, so we have to figure that out. But in any case, then he talks about the fact that scientists, I'm not talking from a religious perspective, but I know they're talking about eternal life, people who will live eternally, which is very fascinating because this is part of our tradition of thousands of years ago. But in any case, his theory is that at this point, the human being is coming close to take over God. And here, a little tiny, a little, little tiny coronavirus, the size of 125 nanometers, which means you could fit a hundred, hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions or billions of these viruses on the eraser of a pencil. Okay. One of these, one of these changed the whole world, literally transformed the world. It reminds me of the story in Talmud in Tractate Gittin that Titus, Titus, who was the Russian, the Roman general, son of Vespasian. Vespasian was the emperor, and he sent, he dispatched Titus to be the general, the commander in chief, to destroy the second temple in the year seventy after the Common Era. And Titus decided that he will at last defeat and destroy God Almighty. And God says, "I'll take the smallest creature, a tiny little mosquito, and that's how you will see." that you're a frail, mortal human being. And for two years, Titus suffered with this little flea or mosquito that went into his head, went into his brain, and would not allow him a moment of serenity. As the Talmud tells the story in Tractate Gittin, in our case, it's not a mosquito, it's not a flea. It's something that we can't even see with the naked eye. We need microscopic instruments, which is why for thousands of years we didn't know that viruses existed. And one such little virus literally put the world on lockdown. So that's lesson number one, a lesson in humility. 
a lesson in how ridiculous hubris is. Not just from a religious point of view, from a scientific point of view, from a medical point of view. When people become arrogant, our more base components come out. And in such a time, you know, nobody has certainty. Nobody can predict the future. We all hope and pray every single day that we should all be healthy, our loved ones should be healthy, our communities, our people, our brothers and sisters in Israel, and the whole world should ultimately be able to recover and enjoy peace and tranquility and brotherhood and sister, brotherly love and sisterly love. But this is really a time of humility. It's a time of vulnerability. It's a time we have to be here for each other, support each other. So, as the rabbi said very well, we're not prophets, but we learn Torah. And we try to live with Torah. We try to internalize the values of Torah. So I want to articulate here a few ideas and a few feelings of how we cope, how we confront, how we deal with coronavirus, with the pandemic, with COVID-19 from a Torah perspective. Point number one, I just stated, it's a time for humility. It's a time when we have all learned that we're not in control. We were never in control, but we have a delusion of control. We love feeling that we're in control of our life. We love feeling that everything is predictable. But really nothing is predictable. And when we can surrender to God's embrace, rather than feel that I'm in control of everything, life becomes much more serene and much more tranquil. They tell an old story about a uh, people were on, on a plane and the, plane, the, the trip was very turbulent. And there was this eight-year-old child who was sitting on a chair. And he was playing, you remember those Game Boys? And he was playing and he was very calm. But the plane was really, really making a lot of trouble, extremely turbulent and there were drops. And people were terrified, and they were screaming and hollering, and this one was praying, and this one was doing other things and holding onto the chair. And this one was writing their final will and testament, and this one is calling their loved ones, telling them, I love you. You know those feelings when a plane is very turbulent. And this eight-year-old boy is as calm as it gets. He is serene, no anxiety. So this elderly fellow turns to him and says, why are you so calm? Why aren't you, why aren't you anxious? He says, because the pilot is my father, and I know that he's going to protect me, so I'm completely calm. And it reminded me of an old anecdote where there was this uh, opera singer who did a rendition of Psalm 23. Mizmor Ledovid Hashem Roi Le'echzer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it was a beautiful rendition, exquisite, something unique and special. He got a standing ovation for two minutes. Afterwards, an old Yiddish Ababa, an old Jewish grandmother gets up and says, can I do my rendition of Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd? And the opera singer says, of course you can. And she begins her rendition. The problem is, she couldn't carry a tune to save her life. She barely knew the words. There was no rhyme or reason, or certainly no musical resonance. But her neshama, her soul came out. And as she goes through this psalm of Tehillim, The Lord is My Shepherd, everybody in the audience finds themselves wiping tears away. She finishes. The opera singer looks at her and says, Ma'am, you have to explain this to me. I delivered a most exquisite, beautiful rendition. I did not see anybody shed a tear. I received a very nice applause, but nobody was crying. You got up, and with all due respect, your rendition was horrible. It lacked elegance, beauty, resonance, exquisiteness. Everybody was crying. Why? My psalm was exceptional. It was impeccable. She looked at him and she says, My dear opera singer, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. And that makes all the difference. This is a time 
when we are challenged to get to know the shepherd, to develop a very deep and intimate and personal relationship with God. There's a very big difference between religion and a relationship with God. To be blunt, there are people who you may call very religious, but do they have a relationship, a personal relationship with God? People tell me openly, we go through the mitzvahs, we follow the routine, yes, I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, I wrap tefillin, I keep Shabbos, I make Kiddush, I daven mincha, I do the things, I shake a lulav on sukkahs, I blow a shofar and roshan, I'll soon light Hanukkah candles. But the personal, intimate relationship with God is sometimes missing. The prophet Isaiah speaks about mitzvahs anashim alamada, doing mitzvahs in a fashion that is routine and monotonous. I brush my teeth in the morning, I don't give much thought to brushing my teeth in the morning, I just want to clear my breath. So other people do some Jewish rituals in the morning. But the question is, is it really internal? Is it really transformative? Is it really personal? There are moments like these in history when we're given this gift, this opportunity, not only to know the psalm, but also to really be able to know the shepherd. So when we have, when we confront such a situation where there is humility, when we learn to be able to give up control in a, in a healthy way, in a good way, when we don't have to be in control of everything about our life, we can surrender and be vulnerable and learn the art of trust and faith in God. Because the truth is, every moment is a miracle. We take sunrise for granted, sunset for granted. We take the fact that there are 70 trillion cells functioning in our body, creating a living organism that is magical and incredible. We take it for granted. It happened yesterday. It's going to happen today too. But every single moment is a new miracle. The Baal Shem Tov said the difference between nature and miracles is just how frequent it happens. He said nature is just a miracle that is perpetuated every moment. So these types of meditations during these times can help us celebrate our vulnerability, knowing that every single moment we are in the hands of a God who loves us infinitely, unconditionally and absolutely, even more than a father and a mother love a child. The Baal Shem Tov said that God's love to every single one of us exceeds infinitely the love of parents to a child, even a child who was born when they were eld- older and they did not have any hope that, to have a child anymore. The Zohar says in the portion of Shmos, Rabbi Shimon says, if a person would be aware of how ferocious and how intense God's love is to him or her, we would run after Hashem, we would run after God with more strength and alacrity than a lioness runs after her prey. Very interesting expression in Zohar. We say every morning in davening, Ahava Rabba Ahavtano, or Avas Olam, whatever, whatever version you daven, you have an Ashkenaz or Svart, Ahava Rabba, Avas Olam, but the concept is the same. Every morning we say, you love us with tremendous love, and we finish the blessing, but when was the last time I stopped and I took a few breaths? I breathed it in, and I tried to meditate and breathe in that love, breathe in that trust, breathe in that awareness that God is in love with you, creating you every single moment, caring for you, and orchestrating every aspect of your life. Yes, I have to do what I have to do. We were charged to create our destiny, not just to be passive observers, but to remember that we are partners and ambassadors of the Rebbeinu Shalom of God. Which now brings me to another, I think, very powerful and important point. And I want to share a teaching that I heard from the late, great Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, who was sadly taken from us last Shabbos, Shabbos Parshas Vayera, the 20th of Cheshvan, 5781. And as you know, Rabbi Sachs, the former chief rabbi 
of Great Britain and the United Kingdom was a towering figure, a towering mind, a towering soul, and a towering pen and voice for the Jewish people. Not only for the Jewish community, but also for the larger non-Jewish community. And I once heard an insight from him that touched me very deeply. And he said, and it's actually the Torah portions that are that we focus on during these weeks, told us, Vayetz and then Vayishlach, the confrontation between Jacob and Esau. And the confrontation begins this week, it will continue next week, it will continue and come to some type of closure the week afterwards. And that night, that fateful night, before Jacob is going to encounter his brother Esau, expecting conflict and war, there is a mysterious battle, a battle that continues all night. Jacob remains alone in the middle of the night, and a man, some mysterious man, wrestles with him till dawn break. Who this man is is the subject of speculation among the commentators from days of yore till this very day. Who is this mysterious individual who is quarreling with Jacob and tries to defeat him, ultimately causes him to limp by dislocating his sciatic nerve and wounding his sciatica. But there is a moment, Rabbi Sachs said, at the end of this fateful night, when this mysterious man sees that he can't defeat Jacob, and dawn breaks and he tells Jacob, he says, send me home, I have to go, because dawn broke. It's daytime, I cannot stay here anymore. And Jacob responds and he says, I will not send you away before you do not bless me. And I ask you a question. If God forbid you're attacked in the middle of the night in a dark alley by a gangster who's trying to kill you, and you're fighting him for many hours, and then finally he's about to leave, do you say, wait, 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 wait. Don't go anywhere until I get a bracha, until I get a blessing. Really? I would call 911. I would try to punch him in the nose and run away scream, whatever I would do. The last thing I would want to do is ask him for a bracha, ask him for a blessing. What, did he become your Rebbe? Or your or your Rosh Hashiva? Or your spiritual coach? What is this that Yaakov is asking him for a blessing? And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zichrona Levracha, said something so moving, so profound and so acute. And I think it would be true to say that this perhaps encapsulates and captures one of the most powerful themes of Jewish history, and may be the ultimate secret of our resilience throughout millennia, through thick and thin, enduring difficult and sometimes excruciatingly difficult circumstances. Jacob is battling an adversary. The battle is about to end. Jacob says, it's not, it would be insufficient for me to just let go and move on. Lo I have learned in my home, I have learned from my father, from my grandfather, from my mother, from my grandmother, that when you encounter a challenge in life, it is not your duty only to try to dispose of the challenge, to get rid of it and to move on. Rather, it is your duty, responsibility and opportunity to come out of this challenging moment more blessed, more aware, more genuine, more authentic. And it's essential to Jewish faith because if the entire objective of the challenge was just for me to try to emancipate myself and liberate myself from this experience, the question would be why would God, the source and essence of goodness, put me into this position in the first place? Why would I have to face these challenging and difficult circumstances in the first place if the only objective is to get rid of them? Thus Jacob says, I know that the objective of the challenge is not only to get rid of it and move on and go back to the same situation I was in prior to the challenge. No, I know that when I face adversity, 
when I face circumstances that may be overwhelming, when I face toxic forces that try to derail me and put me into a very difficult situation, it's not enough just to try to get rid of it, but rather to say, I will not let you go until you do not bless me. I know that the ultimate purpose of this challenge was to empower me, to invigorate me, to bring out the best and the deepest and the greatest from me, and therefore I will not let you go until I make sure that I not only get rid of the darkness, but I transform the darkness into light. Once heard a great insight from the legendary Rabbi Yosher, Rav Hagar, Rabbi Yosef Doiv Halevi Soloveitchik, of Racha, Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, who once shared that the Talmud says in Shraktate Menachos, page 29b, about Rabbi Akiva, and the expression of the Talmud is, I'll say it in the original and then translate, Literally it means that Rabbi Akiva, that greatest of Talmudic sages who lived in the second century after the Kamen era and the period, at the end and post the second destruction of the second temple, during the time of Titus who we mentioned earlier, Rabbi Akiva, on every little line, there are seven letters in a Torah scroll upon which there are little tagim, little koitzim, they look like little thorns, like little zions. On each one of those lines he would expound mounds upon mounds of Jewish law. In other words, Rabbi Akiva was that great scholar who can study the most intricate nuances of the Torah scroll and find meaning and significance in them. But Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik Zatzal said then, the expression the Talmud uses is not I'll call tag v'tag, I'll call koitz v'koitz. Literally means on every thorn, every thorn he would find mounds and mounds of halacha. Why, why the thorn? The answer is because these little lines look like little thorns. They look like tiny thin thorns. Rambam calls them little zions in Hilchus Efetara. Rav Soloveitchik said, but there is also a homiletical insight here, a homiletical spin that he gave it. Rabbi Akiva was a person who witnessed the greatest calamity in Jewish history till the Holocaust. The destruction of the Second Temple was not only the end of the Second Commonwealth, but it saw the tragic destruction of Jerusalem, of Judea, of the land of Israel, of Torah, and of scores and scores of Jews, men, women, and children. The Roman Empire tried to completely decimate and uproot the last vestige of Judaism. And there was one individual responsible for the perpetuation of Judaism, and his name was Rabbi Akiva, the Talmud says in Sanhedrin, Kulu Alibadi Rabbi Akiva, the entire oral tradition that we have today comes from Rabbi Akiva, even after 24,000 students died in a pandemic. Rabbi Akiva lost his entire, his entire following, 24,000 scholars he lost. And what did he do? The Talmud says in Yevomos, page 62, he went to the south, he found five Jewish students, and he started all over again. How did Rabbi Akiva do this? Where did he develop this mentality? So the Talmud says, I'll call koitz v'koitz ha'yadoyosh t'letilim shalalachas. Every thorn that the Romans perforated Rabbi Akiva with, every thorn that they plunged into the body of Rabbi Akiva, we know the Talmud says in Bracha 61, how the Romans flayed the skin of Rabbi Akiva, tortured him terribly until his death. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Talmud is intimating, I'll call koitz v'koitz for every thorn with which they perforated Rabbi Akiva, with which they perforated Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, with which they perforated Jewish existence and Jewish life. What was his response? He saw every thorn as an invitation, as a catalyst, as an opportunity, and as a springboard 
to create yet a rejuvenation, rejuvenation as in J-E-W, a renaissance. For every thorn, he said, we're going to rebuild mountains and mountains of Jewish life and Jewish learning and Jewish observance. Where did Rabbi Akiva get this attitude from? Akiva says that Rizal has the letters of Yaakov. Because he was a reincarnation. His soul was a spark of the soul of the first Yaakov. He also married his wife Rachel, who was a spark of Rachel, who was Yaakov's wife. That's a subject in Kabbalistic literature. Yaakov told his adversary that night, we will not only get out of this, we will get out of this stronger and more powerful. I want to show you something phenomenal about Jewish history. And that is, if you look at Jewish history, you will see Something unique and very inspiring, and that is, after every tremendous crisis, there was an unprecedented explosion of creativity in Jewish life and Jewish learning. If you look, for example, after the destruction of the first temple, which was a horrible calamity in Jewish life and Jewish history, instead of Jews surrendering to despair, the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, introduced a new concept, it's called a mikdash ma'at, a miniature sanctuary, and this became what we know as the shul, the Beis HaKnesses, the Beis HaMedrash. We take today the shul for granted. Well, now we don't take it for granted since Corona. But for many years, we took the shul for granted. This was a fascinating idea. God dwelled in one place in Jerusalem, came Ezekiel and said, no, the central Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Wherever Jews go, they will create spaces where they will gather together to learn, to pray, to connect to each other, to grow together, and to unite and that will become a mini Beis HaMikdash, a mini sanctuary where the Shekhinah will live. And thus, the Beis HaMikdash, one temple was destroyed, and in lieu of that, how many were built? Wherever there is a minion, wherever there are Jews gathering together, a little Beis HaMikdash here and there and there, the Talmud says at the end of Megillah, that all of them are going to go back to Eretz Yisrael and become part of the third Beis HaMikdash, Megillah, page 29, the end of Tractate Megillah. If you look afterwards, the Jewish people come back, after a very, very difficult crisis, they were exiled to Babylonia, they went through the near destruction and genocide of Haman during the time of Purim. But a whole new era of Jewish tradition, of Jewish scholarship developed during the Second Temple. And then the Second Temple was destroyed. This, I told you, besides the Holocaust, this was an extraordinary calamity, if you're familiar with the history from Josephus and our own sources of the history of the Second Temple. And after that, there was an explosion of Jewish creativity, the creation of the Mishnah, the creation of the Gemara, Talmud Yerushalmi, Talmud Bavli, the creation of all of the Midrashim, the creation of the Zohar, the creation of the main uh, bodies of Torah Shabbat, of the oral tradition, happened during the few centuries after the destruction of the Second Temple. You look at the era of the Crusades, which wiped out complete communities in Western Europe. Kehillah Shum, Speyer, Vermeise, Mainz, Speyer and Worms and Mainz, Germany and France, the expulsions of England, all those countries in Western Europe, and it created, following that, there was such a creativity that was created of the Rishonim. The Rishonim, you had Rashi, and the house of Rashi, or the grandchildren of Rashi, the Bali Hatosvos. For the next few hundred years, such an explosion of Torah learning, of Torah dedication of the greatest leaders of Ashkenazic Jewry. There was the Spanish expulsion of 1492 following more than a century of a horrible, horrible inquisition and persecution of Spanish Jewry. And what happens after that? The whole explosion of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah, from the exiles of Spain who come up to Tzfas and compose the most beautiful liturgy, including that song that we love and we sing every Friday night, Lechadodi, Likras, Kalop, Nei Shabbos, It looks like this beautiful hymn that was composed in serenity. It was composed by Rabbeinu Shloimel Kabbat, who himself was murdered by an Arab in Tzfas, brother-in-law of Rabbi Moshe Cardevero. But these were Jews who came from Spain where they lost everything. 
everything. They went up to Tzvaz, they went to other parts of the world, and a whole new explosion of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, emerged after that calamity. And you look after 1648-1649 massacres, Tachvatat. And then the Shapsi Tzvi debacle in the 1660s, where this false messiah converts to Islam. It is such a letdown for European Jewry, who so, so many believed in him. It's a strange story in and of itself. And here comes the revolution and the revelation of the Hasidic movement, the, Baal, the holy Baal Shem, the Baal Shem, who was born in 1698, and his students. There is the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment which begins in Germany, in, in England and in Germany and in France, ultimately will travel to the East, which really splits the Jewish world and shakes up the Jewish world to its core. And as a response, again, you have the whole yeshiva movement from the Lithuanian world. You'll have the Musr movement, and you'll have the Hasidic movement. In our times, or just two mortgages ago, a holocaust, the greatest black hole in the history of humanity and the Jewish people. No words can describe and fathom the cruelty, the sadism, the barbarity, the depth of the tragedy. But you know what the greatness of the Jewish people is? The day they were liberated from Auschwitz. Most of them decided that they are going to recreate Jewish life with passion and gusto and single-minded idealism and commitment. They went, to, they went up to recreate Eretz Yisrael, to recreate Israel, and to recreate Judaism and Jewish communities the world over. The greatest heroes of Jewish history, the survivors of the Holocaust, our fathers and mothers, our Zaydas and Babas, our great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers, with the scars and with the blemishes and with the trauma that most of them never, ever recovered from. Most of them were committed to rebuild Jewish families, Jewish life, Jewish communities, Jewish institutions. What a testimony to the spirit of the Jewish people. It all comes back to that verse of Jacob telling that angel, I will not let you go. I will not leave this fight scarred, limping, without coming out more blessed, more genuine, more authentic, more aware, more invigorated, more empowered. Friends, you know where I'm going with this. Not to compare this era to any previous era. Every era has its blessings and its challenges. And in so many ways, we all know that we are living in times that our grandparents and our great-grandparents could not even dream about in terms of prosperity, in terms of 6.6 million Jews living in our holy land, in our homeland, in our promised land. In fact, of the freedom that the Jewish people have to live as Jews in the United States of America and so many other countries, despite, despite the horrible, the horrible toxicity of anti-Semitism that has reared its ugly head in a very dramatic way in recent years, despite other dangers that face the Jewish people individually and collectively, and despite this great tragedy of the pandemic and the lives it has claimed and the turmoil that it has created. But our role today is not only to tell ourselves and pray, when will this all end and life will go back to normal and the shuls will open up and get rid of the mask and everybody will go back to school and we can open up the stores and you can go back to your bowling alleys, to your malls, to your stadiums, to your theaters, to your bars, to your clubs, uh, traveling and all, everything will come back to normal. Jacob says, no, I will not let you go till we all want to come out of this more blessed. Judaism teaches that every single obstacle is a challenge, and every challenge is an opportunity. Yes, it's not a geschmacker opportunity, it's not always delightful, it's not something I ask for. But when it exists, 
it is incumbent upon us to find the hidden sparks, the hidden opportunities of growth that lay in this challenging moment. And it's true about every challenge in our life. When I face something difficult in my life, there are two approaches. One approach is, how do I get out of this mess? Important, and try to get out of this mess. But that's insufficient. I want to do something much deeper. I want to embrace it for all that lay store in this. There are treasures that you want to extract. Somebody once said that the reasons the Chinese are around for so many millennia is because the same character that they have for crisis, they also have for the word opportunity. The same character. But in Judaism, it's more profound. The same word that we have for a breakdown is the same term that we use for birth of a new child. And the word is majber. The word mashber in modern Hebrew means a breakdown. Mashber comes from the word lishbor, shvira, to break. What's the word in Tanakh that's used for a woman who's sitting on a birthing stool about to give birth to a new baby? Isha yoshevet al hamashber. She sits on the stone, that they used to use a stone, upon which women would sit before, prior to giving birth to their child. What is the connection of this? Because in the Jewish imagination, every mashber, Every time a window closes, a new one opens. One door closes, but another one opens. Every time something breaks in my life, it's not only that something broke. An era ended, but a new one began. The old house caved in, but it's really the beginning of renovation. It's an opportunity to rediscover my life. Yes, sometimes I cling to the old. I don't want to let go. I'm not ready to enter into a brave new world. But sometimes destiny forces me into this brave new world. And that's when I have to be able to open myself up to all the opportunities that exist today. So friends, the Torah tells us when you are facing this, these challenges of corona, individually, familially, communally, collectively, as humans, as Americans, as Jews, don't just sur- don't surrender to despair. Don't even just curse your fate and try to move on and hopefully we will all move on. But ask yourself, How am I going to come out from this much more blessed? And there are so many ways in which we can do this, my dearest friends. And a few of them I will specify, even though I think it's quite obvious, but nonetheless I will specify a few of them. Number one is our marriages. Let's face it, we have nowhere to run. This is an opportunity to be able to cement our marriage, to be able to work through differences that maybe we didn't have the mental space or the time to deal with everybody was stressed, maloyft, megate. The fact is, when a couple experiences a happy and a harmonious marriage, there is no gift like the gift of a good marriage. Just like there's no curse as the curse of an anxious marriage filled with animosity and negative energy and fragmentation and divisiveness. This is a time to be vulnerable, to open ourselves up, to look at those things that have caused us to drift away. Time to spend together much more, to take walks without a phone, to be able to bond, to be able to converse, to be able to communicate, to be able to rediscover ourselves. This is a gift. Don't let this coronavirus pass without your marriage experiencing a makeover, a transformation. And don't give up just because there are differences. Of course there are differences. Just because there are challenges. Of course there are challenges. The only marriages that I know that are perfect are the marriages I don't know. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, our relationship with our children. We have all spent many nights, I can't say all, some people were alone during this time. But many of us have spent time with our children that we didn't expect before. We have seen things 
They have seen things. We have come to learn about certain realities. This is a time to face it and to try to cement your relationship with your children, each and every single one of them. And I know sometimes it's not easy. Children are also going through a lot. And then there are the teenagers. But this is the time where I have to look deep into myself and ask myself how I can be here for my children on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, a continuous basis, whether we live in the same house, and then, of course, it's on a daily basis, or we don't live in the same house, but to be able to really connect with your family in every possible way, emotionally, to be able to play with them and listen to them and bond with them and talk to them and realize where connection is missing. You know, a lot of therapists talk about the four S's. Our children need to be seen. They have to be seen. And they have to be soothed. And they have to feel safe. And they have to feel secure. These are critical, critical components because they are the antidote to the depression and to substance abuse and to a lot of dysfunctionality that exists today. Various addictions, various depressions. We need to make sure that they feel seen and they feel soothed and they feel safe and they feel secure. And that takes emotional time and emotional space and emotional energy. And if not now, when? And if not you, who? Think about this. Another great opportunity is to connect to yourself in new ways. This is a time to reflect, to be introspective, to refocus our priorities, to ask ourselves tough questions. How am I spending my days? How am I spending my nights? What am I really doing with my life? What are my priorities? What is my focus? Why did my soul come into this world? Am I fulfilling the mission that God wants for me? Now, nobody knows exactly what our mission is. But nonetheless, I have to ask myself, how am I utilizing my days, my nights, my weeks? The Baal Shem Tov once said, a Jew comes down to the world to do a one favor for another person. You live 70, 80 years, he says, to do a favor to a person materially and spiritually. Each and every one of us is an ambassador. An ambassador of the Rebbeinah Shlelem, an ambassador of God, an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and wisdom and authenticity and redemption. And I want to ask myself, am I fulfilling my role as an ambassador of God to bring goodness and light to myself, to my loved ones, to my community, to the world? Never underestimate your great potential, the great light that is invested in you as a shliach, as an emissary of Hashem, of the creator of the world. And finally, it's a time to really cement and focus on our own inner relationship with God. Our prayers, many of us have discovered the art of davening on our own, privately. I don't know exactly the situation in your community, but this is also an opportunity. It's not just a tragedy, it's an opportunity for people to really talk to God face-to-face, heart-to-heart, with intimacy, to really discover, as I said in the beginning, your own personal and very, very deep relationship with Hashem, with God. So, my dearest friends, I want to say to all of you, to each and every one of you, the greatest crisis, the greatest challenge that we have during this time is our attitude of how we look at these situations. This is a vulnerable time. And whenever there is vulnerability in us and around us, there's always two options. Option one is we close ourselves off even more. We run away even more. We escape reality even more. Option number two is we open ourselves up more. We allow ourselves to embrace the reality and find meaning and purpose there. We don't have answers to all the questions. We can't eliminate all circumstances and we can't eliminate all pain. What we can do, however, is embrace the moment, find our purpose and our calling in this moment, 
and maximize the potential that exists within it in order to become the human beings that we are capable of becoming, in order to give birth, to take the mashber and to give birth to a new consciousness, a new awareness, a new depth, a new reality. Sometimes we are surrounded by fakeness, by falsehood, by superficiality. These are times that challenge us to shed the layers, to open our hearts to each other, and to become authentic human beings. What we call in Yiddish, pnimi is the convention, internalized people, without so much fanfare, without so much drama, without so much superficiality, but really allowing ourselves to cry and laugh with our souls, with our hearts, to become sources of love and inspiration. I bless you, I bless myself, I bless all of us, that carpe diem, we seize the day, we seize the opportunity to be able to rise to the occasion on all levels and to be able to say to COVID-19, I will not let you go until you bless me. Thank you very much. I see a question that came in here. I am a 15-year-old girl. She's listening to us. And I would like to ask you, I currently have a lot of struggles that I'm dealing with. My parents are divorced. I'm not, to be, I'm not able to be in a regular girls' school as a result of my behavioral struggles. How can you tell me that there will be an end to these struggles, especially when I feel that life is so difficult? Why is God doing this to me? And why is God giving me and so many others so much struggle? You're asking the ultimate question, and I have to be very frank and honest with you. I don't know. I don't know, I don't think, certainly I don't know, but I don't know if anybody knows the answer of why people struggle so much, why people have to go through so much pain. I, re- I really, really don't know. What I could say is that I think a greater question in life is not why, because I don't think we have an answer for that. It's what we do with it, how we deal with it. If I could be here for you in any way, I'm happy to be here for you, but I would encourage you, instead of asking why, which always leaves us frustrated and empty, try to ask the question, how can I take on this reality and how can I turn, on, how can I turn my majber, my challenges, into an opportunity for new awareness and new growth? Next question. I always enjoy listening to you. There are many different opinions regarding masks, social distancing within the community. What are some practical ways of respecting another person's viewpoint when you vehemently disagree? I think this can apply to the election and political tension as well. Yes, it's a very, very important idea. I'm going to tell you something that I heard from Rabbi Israel Meir Lau. At the 75th anniversary of the Auschwitz liberation, January 27, 2020, I know it seems like eons ago, but 45 heads of states, prime ministers, presidents, came to Israel, to Yad Vashem, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And Rabbi Lau, who was one of the youngest survivors, he survived Buchenwald, spoke to all of these leaders, including the leaders who fought together with America against Hitler in the Second World War, the Allies. So you had the leader of Russia, and you had England, etc. And they were all there in Yad Vashem, the vice president was there. And Rabbi Yisrael Meilau said something beautiful to all of these leaders, and he said as follows, I want to ask you a question. You all know the story of the flood in Genesis. We have just read it two weeks ago, three weeks, <laughs> three weeks ago. And he says, for a whole year, Noah had in the ark, he had every conceivable type of mammal, 
and beast, domesticated animal, undomesticated animal, reptile, bird, insect, they were all there in peace. How did that happen? How did the wolf coexist with the lamb? How did the lioness coexist with the gazelle? How did the cheetah coexist with the antelope? How did they all live so peacefully for a whole year? Did you ever think about this question? All the animals in the ark, what happened? And Rabbi Lau said to them, I'll tell you the answer. They knew that outside this ark, outside of these walls, there is a raging flood. And if we will not get along inside of here, and we will be separated, and we will end up outside, we will all perish. We will all die. They realized (laughs) that if Noah throws them out, they have no hope. Inside these walls, we have to get along. Because if we're going to fight, we have nowhere to go. And Rabbi Lau turned to all of these leaders and he said, this is before Corona. He says, we have so many problems out there. Why are we fighting inside of here? And this is what I think is a very important sentiment to understand. What unites us is always greater than what divides us. We have disagreements. That's fine. Let's take a marriage. What do a husband and a wife do when they disagree? They stop disagreeing. Couples disagree. That's not the end of the world. The problem is not to disagree with each other. The problem is when we stop trusting each other, when we stop supporting each other, when we stop talking to each other, and when we stop listening to each other. We have to continue to listen to each other and to communicate with each other. We have disagreements, so we have disagreements. Some people believe that masks is the most important thing. Some people think masks is a fraud. Other people, Some people think doctors here... Oh, the whole the lockdown is political. And others say, no, the lockdown is saving lives. Some people believe that Trump was the greatest thing that ever happened to the United States of America. And some people think Trump is the worst thing that ever happened to the United States of America. So we disagree. But outside there's a flood. We're all affected by the coronavirus. We're all affected by terrorism. We're all affected by anti-Semitism. We're all affected by drug abuse, by substance abuse. We're all affected by teenage depression. We're all affected by the breakdown of families. We have enough what to connect with. Next question. You know what else? Don't be petty. Don't be petty. You have to be larger. It's very easy to get petty, to get personal, to start hating people because they disagree with you about Joe Biden or Donald J. Trump. Don't get petty. Don't be a small person. Be a large person. Don't be needy. Be a source of love. Be a source of empowerment. Be a source of of moral clarity and focus. You can do it if you put your head to it. And if you meditate every morning and you remain anchored and centered. Next question. How can each of us feel... I'm reading from the chat of the Young Israel of Boca Raton Zoom session. How can every one of us feel that each of us is part of a larger picture? I always feel that it's so difficult for each for us to respect other people... And not only that, I am told that the other is not really an other because we're all part of a cohesive whole. How can I come and feel that? It's a very good question. And the answer to that, and thank you for writing it in Hebrew, that's very refreshing and nice. And the answer is, yes, it's counterintuitive. Our natural emotion and instinct is, you are you and I am I and we are disconnected. But if you follow a little bit the developments of science and physics, during recent generations, and most significantly during recent years, you will see that cutting physics is coming closer and closer to the awareness that we're all one. I read somebody, he, he, he considers himself an atheist, but he says, whatever you believe about the origin of the world, you have to say 
that this world came about, however way it came about, and all living organisms were somehow using the same dictionary. Because we all are using the same language called DNA. I share 50% of DNA with a banana, and 98% of DNA with a chimpanzee. So all of us are so deeply connected. There is such a balanced ecosystem where all of humanity, all living organisms, the entire planet and the entire universe are really very deeply connected with each other. And you don't need to go far for this. Take a look at COVID-19, okay? Forgive me for being graphic and dramatic, but I want to describe to you the scene. It happened not so long ago. There was a short Chinese man who decided to go out to a supermarket in Wuhan, China, in order to buy a bat or a beetle or another insect for his family. And he went to the marketplace of Wuhan, China. It's a short little guy, regular Chinese man, probably not very affluent, probably very poor. And he went to the marketplace and he bought this insect or this animal from the marketplace. My speculation is that if you would ask him, are you a significant human being and part of the jigsaw puzzle of humanity, part of a symphony, he would laugh at you and say, I'm just a simple Chinaman trying to support my family in Wuhan and I went to buy some food in the supermarket, an act that is as insignificant and as consequential as an act can be. Little did this Chinaman know that at that moment, single-handedly, he changed the entire planet. A few weeks or a few months later, 7.7 billion people were on lockdown. Do you understand what I'm saying? With the coronavirus, we managed to see it vividly, but this is true with every act in life. Maimonides writes in the Laws of Repentance, chapter 3, that a person should consider himself and the whole world like a scale that's balanced. And if I engage in one positive, virtuous, holy thought or word or deed... I literally tipped the scale and brought salvation to the world. It seems strange, archaic, weird. Come on. What can one act accomplish? But what did it take to start the First World War? A 19-year-old youngster, Gabriel Princip, a 19-year-old kid, unleashed a bullet. Unleashed a bullet. And the First World War began in the summer of 1914. And as a result of that, the Second World War began and human history changed forever. That's true in the negative. It's certainly true in the positive as well. So you have to be able to see yourself for who you really are. When we take a microscope, a physical one and a spiritual one, we see that the universe is united, the universe is synchronized. That's why physicists are looking today for the string theory, for the ultimate singular law that is responsible for all of the patterns of existence. And they call it the string theory. It's like a vibration of music. So the closer and closer we come to Geula, to redemption, the more and more we see the unity of the universe. And ultimately, what is Mashiach? When we will be able to look at the world from the lenses of the divine creator and we will see that everything is one. We are all one because when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears as is, an extension of the infinite oneness of God. Rabbi, do you have any tips for gaining an appreciation for gifts we take for granted before having them removed. Oh, I was tonight by a chiropractor just before this class. I needed an adjustment. So this fellow, who's a nice Catholic man here in Rockland County, New York, says to me, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Because next week is Thanksgiving. So I say, yes, three times a day. 
And he paused, he stopped working on me. And he said, wow, wow. When I was young, my parents taught me not to take something into my mouth without giving thanks. But we forgot about this. At least once a year, we have a Thanksgiving dinner to give thanks. I said, yes, we do it three times a day. We call it Shachris, Mincha, and Mayrev. And I asked my son, my little boy was there. I said, what do we do before we take a drink of water, before we put something into our mouth? And he said, we make a bracha. I said, translate the word bracha. He says, we make a blessing. Much of Judaism are rituals that are there to invoke gratitude. What is the first? What are the first words a Jew says when she or he wakes up in the morning? What are the first words? I don't know if you do this, but if you don't, it's a very, very good thing to do. It puts the day in focus. You wake up before you check your phone. No text, no WhatsApp, no emails. Wait, wait, wait. We say, I thank you. We start off, Moda. I'm grateful to you for giving me back my soul, my divine, holy, beautiful, confident, sacred, divine soul for another day. I'm grateful to you for giving, for putting your trust in me for another day. Then we wash our hands and we begin the day. We open our day with gratitude. And if you know the Jewish, if you know about the Jewish prayer book, you know that before we even pray, there's a whole list of blessings that express our gratefulness for everything we take for granted. We thank God every time we can go to the bathroom for our urinary system. We thank for our respiratory system. We thank for our digestive system. Don't take for granted the nine systems of your organism. They're incredible. They're abnormal. They are stupendous. They are magical. We don't take anything for granted. There's a whole list of blessings we say in the morning that are there to help us become more mindful and more aware of the miracle of life. So if you engage in this and you engage in it with intention, with conscientiousness, don't do it absent-mindedly, you will find yourself cultivating the muscle of gratitude in your psyche. Rabbi, I have another few questions. Should I continue? Yes, please. Okay. Next question. I have... I have committed quite a few sins in my life. What happens to my sin after I do tshuva, after I repent? It's a wonderful question, but you should not doubt what the Torah says. The Torah says that when we apologize and we experience remorse and we confess and we make a resolution for the future, the sin is wiped away. You do not have to doubt that truth. So realize that you are good. We all make mistakes, we fail, as long as, as long as we learn from them, then, as I said, every failure becomes a springboard for new awareness. Next question. You said in the beginning of the lecture that God loves us very deeply. How do you know this? <laughs> How do you know this? Well, I don't know if you know about the picture that NASA took in the 90s, right? I think it's called the... The, the blue dot, they, they, from, I think it was three or four billion light years away, they took a picture of our planet. You ever saw that picture? It's a tiny, tiny little dot, almost invisible. Okay, It looks like a speck of dust, literally. And that's the planet in which we live and where all the wars happen and which we take so seriously. You look at this little tiny planet from outer space, it literally looks like it doesn't exist, literally like a pea. Less than a pea, like 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 a a a, a, a a grain of sand, and even smaller. And I and you are living in that space. And now you come to this little dot, and you see that the synchronization and the genius and the symmetry 
in this little dot that seems so insignificant is beyond imagination. Every living organism, every tree, every bush, every human being, every animal, every fish, every bird, everything is made up of not millions, not billions, not trillions, not zillions, not even sectillions of atoms. And each one functioning in perfect harmony and symmetry. And that's just in our planet. And you see all of this, it's very clear that there is purpose here. And there is design. And somehow this comes from infinity. Someone who is beyond matter and beyond space and beyond time who can create all of this. The one place that supports life and that allows us to function. And you have to ask the question, why? Why are so many people opposed to reach the normal conclusion that if there's a book, it has an author. And if there's a symphony, there's a composer. And if there's a play, there must be a writer of a play. And if there's a mansion, there must be an architect and a contractor. And the universe is far more complex. Because if we believe that this universe has a designer, we have to ask the next question. What is the purpose? But one thing is clear. That in this little, little, little dot that seems so insignificant, this is where the drama of life exists. Which must bring us to the conclusion that God is really invested in us. There's something He loves. <laughs> he loves and cherishes. And that's why the Torah repeats this so many times. God says, I love you. We say every morning, Tov Hashem Lakol, Virachamov Al Kol Maasov. A lot of teenagers, a lot of teenagers and young adults seem not to have any delight in Judaism. We don't have a Geshmak. Do you have advice? or some words of strength to offer that would give us a sense of delightful happiness in serving God and in learning Torah? And finally, what is your opinion about moving to Israel? Okay, let me answer these two questions briefly. So the first question about people not having a delight in Judaism, there is of course a lot to say about this, but I think I would give I would give three pieces of fast advice. Number one, today it's very possible. Find yourself a teacher, a mentor, a writer, an author, anywhere in the world who speaks to you. Today with the internet, we have the ability, the blessing to be able to become a disciple of any Rebbe in the world. It could be in Israel, it could be in America, it could be in Europe, wherever this person is. I'm sure there's one person, two people, three people that do speak to you. You respect their words, their brains, their souls, their passion, their feelings, their emotions. Become their students. Learn from them. Speak to them. Maybe FaceTime, Zoom, or read their articles, or follow their shurim, or follow their classes. If they speak to your soul, they are your tools for inspiration. Learn Torah through them. That's number one. Number two, it's important in order to appreciate Judaism, it's extremely important to be able to allow yourself to become spiritually vulnerable. The more you get to know yourself, the more you will get to know God. The more you will be able to be honest with who you are and really search for ultimate self-actualization and have the readiness to confront all your pain and all your trauma, you will find in that your deepest spiritual core and meaning, which will suddenly give you a whole new appreciation of what Judaism is here for. Judaism will satisfy your deepest quests, your deepest yearnings, your spirituality. But for that, you have to be able to face yourself, face your demons in a very profound way. And the third thing I would suggest to you is open yourself up to information. Judaism is very vast. It's infinite. Many of us have a very limited education. Some people learn Gemara a whole day. Some people learn other subjects. But there is something in Torah for everybody. Torah is infinite. 
Allow yourself to explore all aspects of Judaism and you will find those things that will trigger you and will inspire you and will stimulate you. And finally, I would encourage you to become a leader. When we give to others, we give to ourselves. When we inspire others, we inspire ourselves. So if you can dedicate time every day to be an ambassador of love, even as a youngster, to be there for other people, you will find new meaning and inspiration in your Judaism and in your life. And I would also say, this is I guess number five, when you pray, take a few minutes to pray in your own language to God. Speak to God about yourself. In terms of Israel, in terms of Israel, I will, uh, I will say this. I heard this from Rabbi, I was in the airport, we were coming back from Los Angeles, this is before Corona, we did a Shabbaton there. And in JFK Airport in Kennedy, I met the former chief rabbi of Israel, whom I mentioned earlier, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lauschlitte. And he told me something that he heard from the second chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, who said this in the name of the first chief rabbi of Palestine that was before Israel, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Hakoyen Kuk, Rav Kuk. And this is what he said. The Navi says in Yeshaya, the prophet says in Isaiah, chapter 40, when Mashiach comes... The prophet says, we're going to look up and say, Who are all these Jews who flew back to Israel like the cloud and like doves coming back to the dovecote? Ask Rav Cook why the redundancy of two metaphors, Jews coming back to Israel like the clouds moving and drifting in the wind coming back to Israel and like doves coming back to their nests, their dovecotes. Why this redundancy? So Rav Cook said, there's a difference between a cloud moving and a, and a dove traveling. A cloud moves involuntarily. The wind comes and it pushes the cloud. The cloud itself doesn't choose to move and relocate. It's the wind that forces it to go. The dove is not forced to go back to the dovecote. The dove longs to go back to the dovecote because it wants to be united with its mate and with its young. It has to leave the nest in order to bring food. But ultimately the dove wants to go home. Said Rav Kook, there are two types of Jews who travel to Eretz Yisrael. There are Jews who travel to the Holy Land like clouds that are pushed by the wind, and there are Jews who travel to Eretz Yisrael like doves who are going back home. And Rabbi Lau told me, he says, I went to Israel in 1946 like a cloud. There was a holocaust. My parents were killed. Siblings were killed. Pietrikov was decimated. I had no home. I had nowhere to go. The winds pushed me to Eretz Yisrael, fena. but there's another way of coming to Eretz Yisrael, like doves coming back home, they want to go back home, they want to go back to the home of the Jewish people, and I would say that there are two types of Jews, there are Jews who become aware that they're Jewish because of anti-Semitism, because of the wind that forces them and compels them to wake up and smell the coffee, but we want Jews who embrace their Judaism like doves who want to go home, this is my home. This is my organic place. So the point is as follows. Our connection to Israel, to Israel, is organic. It's innate. It's intrinsic. The answer for each individual, whether to move to the land of Israel, how to move to the land of Israel, when to move to the land of Israel, this is not, I don't have the authority and the wisdom and the clarity to be able to give a, a, a global answer to the Jewish world. This is a decision that people have to make, figuring out the, the pros and the cons, their family situation, their responsibility in the United States of America, uh, their positions of leadership, how it's going to affect other people. We can't only think about ourselves. We also have to think about our environment. But one thing we have to remember, that our relationship 
relationship to Israel should never be like a cloud that sometimes ends up drifting away there, but like a dove that always yearns to return to its dovecote. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you, and thank you for the schus, for the privilege, the opportunity to address the beautiful and amazing community of young Israel of Boca. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rabovsky Shlita. Thank you so much, David, and thank you to all of you who have joined us. Chazak, chazak, v'nis chazak. Good night. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.